Hamas says it's released two hostages who have been kidnapped from Israel when the militants attacked the country more than two weeks ago. Both hostages are women. Hamas is holding more than 200 other hostages in Gaza. Coming up, hostage diplomacy on this Monday, October 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a woman whose nine-year-old daughter missed cancer treatments because the supply of a $10 chemotherapy drug had run out, finds a way to help people who need drugs in short supply. And this month marks the 70th anniversary of an explosion aboard the USS Leyte at the South Boston Naval Annex. 92-year-old Jim Sickless remembers the fire below deck that claimed 32 lives. After the fire, they called everybody aboard so they could count who was alive and who is not alive. That story and much more coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Two more hostages have been freed from Hamas, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross, which says it facilitated their release. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv on the second hostage release since militants invaded southern Israel and abducted them two and a half weeks ago. The Red Cross said the release took place this evening. Israeli public broadcasting named the released Israelis as Nurit Yitzchak Cooper and Yocheved Lifshitz, around 80 and 85 years old, respectively. Their husbands are reportedly still being held in Gaza. Israel says 220 hostages are still in Gaza. Last Friday, an American mother and daughter were released. Other U.S. citizens remain missing or held hostage. Israel continues to bombard Gaza and is preparing for a possible ground invasion. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. President Biden said hostages should be released before the U.S. would support a ceasefire. The House is in a new go-round to try to elect a speaker. Nine Republicans are running, but the math is the same as when Republicans kicked out Speaker Kevin McCarthy nearly three weeks ago, and they have so far been unable to unify behind a candidate. The Republican candidates are set to make their pitches to colleagues tonight. NPR's Deirdre Walsh has the latest. The House of Representatives continues to be frozen without a speaker. Of the nine candidates in the race, House Majority Whip Tom Emmer from Minnesota may have an edge. He's currently number three in the House and ran the GOP campaign committee. Mike Johnson from Louisiana and Gary Palmer of Alabama also serve in Republican leadership. After listening to all the candidates speak in a closed-door forum, members vote via secret ballot on Tuesday. With so many in the running, that process could take multiple rounds. A full House vote could come as soon as Tuesday, but it's unclear if a new nominee can get the votes needed to win the gavel, 217, if all members are present and voting. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. Chevron has agreed to buy rival energy company Hess for $53 billion. NPR's Scott Horsley has this report. Chevron's tie-up with Hess is the second big oil company deal in as many weeks. It follows ExxonMobil's acquisition of Pioneer Natural Resources earlier this month. The purchase gives Chevron access to shale oil fields in North Dakota, as well as a major field in South America. Oil prices have been hovering around $90 a barrel, although retail gasoline prices in the U.S. continue to slide. AAA reports the average price of regular gas is about $3.55 a gallon. It's fallen by a nickel in the last week and is down 30 cents from a month ago. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey pleaded not guilty today in federal court in New York City to a charge alleging he conspired to act as an agent of the Egyptian government. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Among the Americans who remain trapped in Gaza as the war between Israel and Hamas fighters is a family from Medway. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, the conditions in Gaza are deteriorating, and the family says it still doesn't know when or if they can leave. Abud Okal, his wife, and one-year-old son were visiting family in Gaza when the war began more than two weeks ago. U.S. officials have told them Americans might be able to get into Egypt through the Rafah border crossing, but they've gone there four separate times and so far have not been able to cross. A friend of the family provided this recording of Okal from today, saying he's still hopeful his family will get out. Well, we're sad for the people that we would leave behind, the loved ones, the friends, all the the civilians of Gaza. Um, we at least has a chance to save our son and leave Gaza to head back home to safety. The U.S. State Department says it continues to work to get Americans out of Gaza. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. More than 350 Massachusetts leaders are urging the Biden administration and the state's congressional delegation to help newly arriving migrants. The group includes people from nonprofits, businesses, public agencies, and municipalities. They jointly signed a letter that asks for expedited work permits, federal funding for essential services, and more congregate shelter sites. It's not too late to celebrate National Boston Cream Pie Day. The dessert was concocted around 1865 at the Omni Parker House in Boston by a French chef, Augustine Anaison. The the classic version is two circles of sponge cake with vanilla custard in the middle and chocolate icing on top, the best part. Parker House's historian Susan Wilson says tourists often associate the hotel with pie and the other famous bakery dish, the Parker House roll, and they forget about all the other stuff. Do they remember that Jack Kennedy, you know, proposed to Jackie here? Probably not. Do they remember that John Wilkes Booth stayed here and practiced shooting the week before he assassinated Lincoln? Probably not. Those aren't the things that people remember. They remember the the pie and the rolls. Wilson is going to be at the Parker House tonight at uh, 6 o'clock to talk about the pie's history and give away free slices. In the forecast, a beautiful day is now cloudy, and we should have clouds overnight tonight, about 43 degrees. Tomorrow should reach the low 60s, a good share of sunshine. Wednesday, sunny and milder, could nudge 70 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There is ongoing international diplomacy to try to free hostages held by Hamas in Gaza and to get more aid into Gaza. Two elderly Israelis were released today. Meanwhile, Israel says Hamas has still been trying to launch attacks since the massive invasion of southern Israel October 7th. And Israeli troops continue to bombard Gaza and amass troops on the border. International diplomats may be trying to delay a ground offensive to buy time to get hostages out and to contain the conflict. NPR's Michelle Kellerman joins us now to talk about the latest. Hi there. Hi there, Juana. So, Michelle, let's just start with those two hostages that we mentioned who were released today. What can you tell us about them? So Israeli um, media say that there are two women who are around 80 and 85 years old. They had been kidnapped from their kibbutz. Um, Their husbands are reportedly still being held in Gaza. And this follows the release Friday of two Americans, a mother and daughter. 
Um, but this is really still just a small number, Wana. Hamas is believed to be holding 220 hostages, children, men, women, the elderly, and nationals of many countries. Um, the U.S. says there are still uh, 10 Americans missing. And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the administration is very focused on this. It is literally an hour-by-hour effort here at the White House and at the State Department to find out where these folks are and to try to make the effort to get them out and get them back. He also says there are several hundred Palestinian Americans who are trying to get out of Gaza as Israel continues to bombard the area. The U.S. has been trying to get them through a border crossing with Egypt, but Egypt is pushing for more aid to get in. The U.N. says only about 54 trucks have gotten in in recent days, but no fuel, and this is a drop in the bucket for what's needed. Um, Palestinians say 5,000 Palestinians have been killed in Mm. Israeli airstrikes. Um, You know, there were 1,400 Israelis killed by Hamas. Michelle, I mean, how much is the hostage diplomacy weighing on officials as they talk to Israel about preparations for a future ground offensive? Well, certainly family members want to give diplomacy more time. Um, You're also hearing that from European diplomats. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, is going to Israel this week, and the fate of French hostages will be on his agenda. Um, You know, Juana, I talked to Christopher O'Leary, who used to be the director of hostage recovery for the U.S. government. He's now with a security consultancy called the Soufan Group. And he says the U.S. and others could argue for a delay, but he added this. Hamas is playing a very deliberate, calculated game. This is part of their broader strategy. They were going to try to drag this out and change the narrative from what they did on October 7th to somewhat being victims. The U.S. and Israel don't want to let Hamas buy time to rest and refit, as one State Department spokesman said today. And U.S. officials have been thanking Qatar for playing a role in these hostage releases. Help us understand how that Gulf state has become such a central figure here. Yeah, I asked O'Leary about that, um, and he called the Qataris exceptional partners. They played a role in getting Americans out of Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrew. They played a role in getting American detainees out of Iran more recently. And, you know, in Gaza, Qatar plays a really important role. It's... um, It has a lot of influence because it's been helping to pay salaries of public workers in Gaza over the years. There's a Hamas office in Doha. So when Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Qatar recently, he kind of had to strike a balance. He said that it can no longer be business as usual with Hamas, but he also made clear that he wants Hamas to keep open these channels of communication while Hamas continues to hold hostages. Qatar said it's ready to play that role, but doesn't want to be attacked in public for dealing with Hamas since the U.S. and Israel want these channels open. And Michelle, in the short time we have left, is the United States asking Israel to delay its ground offensive to allow for more hostages to be released? Well, officials won't say that publicly, but they are offering some words of caution behind closed doors with Israel. And there are other reasons why, not just the hostage situation. There's a big fear of regional blowback that could mean threats against U.S. embassies and military bases. So U.S. officials are talking about steps they're taking to beef up security in the region with aircraft carrier groups and with other forces to prepare for that kind of blowback. NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you.
The vast majority, 90% of the medications that Americans take are generic. And unlike pricey brand name drugs, generics are usually cheap. In fact, they are often too cheap for manufacturers to turn profits, even for making life-saving medicines. As a result, the industry has atrophied for decades as drug shortages worsen. Meanwhile, one woman is finding workarounds to help desperate patients, as NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports. Laura Bray had no idea the generic drug market was broken until four years ago when her nine-year-old girl, Abby, missed chemotherapy because a $10 drug ran out. And we were told that the most important thing that we could do as parents to help her survive was compliance with the drug regimen every single day, every single time. Yet there was none to be had. At the time, Bray studied supply chains and taught business at a Tampa community college. So she knew which questions to ask. Who makes how much of the drug Abby needs? When's the next shipment? And does anyone have unused doses they could share? But no one could tell her. Is there a public, available, transparent place with all of those answers? In the supply chain, the answer is no. Much of that information is considered trade secret. As a result, patients, doctors, pharmacists, and even regulators are left guessing when, if, or how a drug shortage might end. That outraged the mother of three. I could not believe that our pharmaceutical supply chain, the supply chain that fills the hands that save our people, was not redundant enough, and our tennis shoe supply chain was better managed. Terrified, Abby Bray asked whether all that meant she would die. Her mother leveled her eyes at her middle child and said, We don't know, but I'm going to try to find it. And sometimes in trying, extraordinary things happen. Once they lose patent protection, generic medicines are often sold in bundles. Hospitals, pharmacists, or patients cannot compare a particular drug's quality against that of another maker. So generic manufacturers compete solely on price. That's created a race to rock-bottom prices, making it hard for them to stay in business. Generic drug maker Acorn shut down in bankruptcy this year. Teva and others paired their product lines. Fewer factories means more frequent shortages. These shortages are a self-inflicted wound. Marta Wojinska studies health policy at the Brookings Institution. She says it's clear the manufacturers need to make more money to stabilize. The more difficult question is how. She argues the government should financially reward hospitals able to provide more reliable supplies of drugs. That requires us to be forward-looking and really changing dynamics in the whole system. Such an overhaul would take time, and Abby Bray's treatment couldn't wait. So her mother worked the phones, scouring for any hospital, researcher, or cancer center with spare drug. One distributor, McKesson, told Bray it would transport doses to her daughter if she located any. Then she and friends called hundreds of children's hospitals until finding unused vials. And then just like duct taping together solutions. It's insane. The initial scramble left Bray grateful, but not relieved. She thought of other patients facing shortages. She posted advice on Facebook, then set up a website. And then that's when it really kind of took off. Desperate calls and emails streamed in, and Angels for Change, Bray's one-woman nonprofit, was born. At first, she handled each patient by patient. But as she got to know hospital pharmacists, 
drug distributors, and many others along the supply chain, Bray found she could fill a whole hospital's urgent drug needs, for example. Now, four years in, Bray has eyes and ears across the industry. If a factory falters or closes, her sources help her locate backup inventory or estimate future shipments. With the other manufacturers, I'm asking, will you share for patients in dire need? Will you hold back a small amount of supply, 1% of that batch? Even big players in pharmaceuticals agree. Bray is the industry's accidental expert. She's become a human version of the database she looked for when her daughter's shots first ran out. She is the go-to person for patients facing dire drug needs. But, as she points out, there's nothing automated about the painstaking work. (laughs) I wish I had a software system. She took a pay cut and stopped teaching to work full-time for Angels for Change. It's now funded by individuals and the McKesson Foundation. She says she wishes she could return to her old life, but can't because she's haunted by the thought of other families facing shortages. There are moments in your life that are just burned in your memory, you know, and that change you. And some of that change can be for the better, but all that change comes with trauma. At first, Bray knew all the people she helped, a 14-year-old violinist, a five-year-old Spider-Man superfan, her own Abby, now 13, energetic and healthy. Bray's even gotten to a point where she can predict shortages and has found ways to avert them. She says that's helped potentially hundreds of thousands of others. Still, Bray feels restless. The responsibility feels heavy. Her system relies on her. If I was hit by a bus tomorrow, it would all go away. So Bray wants to see permanent reform of the whole system, and she's optimistic. She says more policymakers and industry players seem to realize the urgent need for collective action. It's daunting, she says, but hopes they can look to angels for change as proof of what can be done. What I hope it shows everyone is that this is possible to fix. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, women's soccer will pass a milestone next year when what's billed as the first stadium designed and built specifically for women's professional sports opens in Kansas City. That story and much more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. Ups and downs on Wall Street to start off the week. The Dow lost about six-tenths of a percent. S&P was down two-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq, on the other hand, snapped four days of losses. It finished up just over a quarter of a percent. Federal regulators have given the green light for a Boston-based biotech to begin human trials of its experimental heart disease drug. The trials have been on hold for nearly a year. Boston Business Journal reports that Verve Therapeutics today said it's addressed all the FDA's questions. Verve's proposed one-time treatment uses gene editing on those with a family history of high levels of bad cholesterol. The forecast is coming up. 
Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Lots of gray out there right now. Should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight down around the low 40s. For tomorrow, sunny and pretty nice. Breezy, a lot like today in the low 60s. And then temperatures continue to move up as the week goes on. This is WBUR. It's 421. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than two decades ago, Virginia's crime lab discovered clippings of evidence taped to lab notes in hundreds of cases. Evidence that led to the exoneration of 13 people who had been wrongfully convicted. The forensic scientist who kept the evidence was hailed as a hero. But a whistleblower has raised major questions about her work. Ben Pavier with member station VPM reports. In 1982, Marvin Anderson was convicted in a rape and abduction case. There was no DNA testing at the time. He spent 15 years in prison. Then, in 2001, the state crime lab revealed that the forensic scientist working his case had taped down swabs of evidence, including semen found on the victim. DNA tests confirmed Anderson's innocence. He was driving when he found out. I just pulled over to the side, got out the truck, and they started walking down. 95, and I just started dancing. I mean, people were blowing a horn at me like I was crazy. The scientist, Mary Jane Burton, had died two years earlier after a long career as a serologist. For Anderson, it almost felt like Burton had known more accurate forensic techniques were coming. I always look at Miss Burton as a person that saw the future. It turned out that it wasn't just Anderson's case where Burton kept evidence in her lab notes. Here's Paul Ferrara, the lab's director at the time, in a 2006 interview with NPR's Anthony Brooks. Now, as it turns out, we find out that there are thousands of cases. Thousands? Thousands. The state spent the next 13 years going through those files, leading to a slew of exonerations. Burton was lionized in the press as a hero of Virginia wrongful conviction cases. But there was at least one person with a very different opinion of Burton's work. Gina Demas, who trained under Burton in the 1970s. Dima said she discovered that Burton was regularly skipping critical controls, pushing the limits of her testing, and even falsifying lab results. This is a story that will scare the bejesus out of you. She told her story to reporters Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman in the podcast Admissible, Shreds of Evidence. At first, they had no idea whether to take her seriously. But as they began coming through Demas's old files... So what does all this mean? Okay. I feel like it's gibberish. I'm still going. I know. <laughs> they found paperwork that supports her claims that Burton 10. altered yeah. test results. That's, they also changed that. Oh, yeah. 
BA1. That's totally changed. The result? With Burton's change, the police's suspect wouldn't be ruled out. Demas tried to get the attention of the lab's leadership. She even filed an unsuccessful lawsuit in the 1970s. They all covered all that up, knowing it was wrong. If you want to do that, there's mafias for that. For the podcast, Kramer and a team of reporters looked into Demas's allegations and the culture of the Virginia lab. They spoke with several of Mary Jane Burton's former co-workers, including Deanne Dabbs. She said she was aware of problems with Burton's work, but nothing on the scale of changed test results. I think it calls into question the cases that she worked. I mean, all the cases, and she worked a lot of cases. Now, a committee overseeing the state crime lab's work is deciding whether to revisit old cases for more than just DNA evidence. The lab's current director, Linda Jackson, recently addressed the accusations in a committee meeting. The reason we're all here is because it needs to be reviewed and then go from there. The committee could decide to let the matter rest. There have been questions about cost and feasibility. Or they could act on the new revelations and open a new chapter in the story of Mary Jane Burton and the people affected by her work. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. Since the start of the war between Hamas and Israel, images depicting the conflict have been all over social media. Some are real, showing the brutality of the war's impact on both Israelis and Palestinians. But there are also a lot of manipulated or misleading images and videos spreading online. And there are groups in many countries trying to fight all that disinformation. NPR's Bobby Allen spoke to one man who leads an Israel-based group known as Fake Reporter. Hia Schatz walked into the kitchen and saw his mother-in-law standing there in tears. He was at his in-law's house outside of Tel Aviv, where his family fled the violence of the war. I saw the mother of my partner. She was in the kitchen, like all of a sudden crying and asked her what happened. And she said, I just saw a horrible video of babies um, in cages of Hamas. Not only did Schatz know that it was bogus footage, the organization he runs, Fake Reporter, was the first to show that the video depicted something else entirely and had been posted online well before the war. In the kitchen, Schatz turned to his mother-in-law and said, This is a video that we refuted. It's, it's a lie. It's, it's fake. It's a lie. It's a fake is something Schatz's group has been saying a lot since Hamas attacked Israel, unleashing an information war online. While plenty of authentic photos and videos have portrayed the barbaric violence of the war, there has been an undercurrent of misinformation, too. Fake Reporter is trying to tackle it head on. It's more than 3,000 volunteers have access to software where images and videos suspected of being fake or misleading are flagged to trained experts who, through some Internet sleuthing, figure out whether something is real or fake. They then report it to social media companies, and their reports are helping to get harmful content removed. Schatz is overseeing it all from what he calls a situation room in the front yard of his in-law's house. The house became like a war room for our team, for Fake Reporter. Um, half of my team came when we sat together, and it was also uh, not just a, a house a shelter, but also really like a situation room to deal with the situation. Photos from past conflicts being passed off as live footage from Gaza, fake orders from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, inflammatory messages purporting to be from the Israel Defense Forces. Social media companies have teams dedicated to catching this kind of stuff too, but Schatz says too often their response time is too slow. A video could reach millions before it's removed. Schott says in the meantime, fake content is adding another layer of fog to the war. There's a sense that you can't believe anyone 
It's something that that actually crumbles society. At first, Schott says the day-to-day -day work was made more complicated because social media companies, especially X, formerly Twitter, had almost no open lines of communication. After owner Elon Musk gutted the company's trust and safety team, and Meta, Google, and other tech companies also reduced safety divisions. Schott says recently X and all the other platforms have gotten more responsive to what Fake Reporter is finding. The group was founded almost three years ago. Before the war, it was focused on trying to help people who were targeted with online harassment for speaking out against corruption. Schott says the social media companies were not always the best partners. We don't need to wait for war to understand that people are under attack and are need to be protected in the online world. On X, on Meta, on Google, on any, any platforms. Back in the kitchen, talking to his mother-in-law about the phony Kids in the Cage video really made Schatz understand the importance of fighting against the spread of disinformation online. He says it's not just about separating fact from fiction, but about changing how people respond emotionally to a conflict. And you can see by, for example, my mother-in-law really broke her down. The same is happening to millions of people around the world, seeing such horrific videos online that not necessarily are true. And when the next fake horrific video starts spreading online, he says he hopes fake reporter can stop it in its tracks before it goes viral. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes, a new survey finds that gun violence in schools is a top concern for American families, yet there's disagreement over active shooter drills. Tonight should be chilly, only about 43 degrees. Tomorrow reaching the low 60s again. A good share of sunshine tomorrow. Wednesday should be sunny and milder. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in relationships based on trust, collaboration, and shared values with nonprofit organizations and community partners, such as Eastie Farm, Zumix, and East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, serving East Boston's diverse needs and vibrant culture. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Our names reveal so much of ourselves, cultural roots, tradition, even power. So learning to pronounce a name correctly matters. Ofa yeah. Kibaha Tupo Malohi. Yep, just like that. And that's it's very it's beautiful. actually very phonetic. It is, and it's it's very melodic. The new children's book, Say My Name, next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The International Red Cross says Hamas militants have released two elderly female hostages who were held in Gaza. It's the second release since militants invaded Israel two and a half weeks ago. That leaves more than 200 people still being held and several Americans are missing. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. We still have about 10 unaccounted for Americans and it's, it's not exactly clear to us where those 10 people are. This as the death toll in Gaza rises. Palestinian health officials say more than 5,000 people are dead amid hundreds of airstrikes coming from Israel. More than 1,400 Israelis were killed in the Hamas militant attack that sparked the war. 
The United Auto Workers Union has expanded the strike against Stellantis, the automaker formerly known as Chrysler. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, 6,800 workers walked off the job near Detroit at the Sterling Heights assembly plant, which makes Ram trucks. The UAW said of the big three auto companies, Stellantis has the worst offer on the table. Specifically, the union cited wage progression, cost of living adjustments, and temporary worker pay and path to permanent status as issues where Stellantis lags behind General Motors and Ford. Union President Sean Fain last week acknowledged all three companies have record offers on the table, but said he believed auto workers deserve still more. In a statement, Stellantis says it's outraged at the expansion of the strike and said the work stoppage would cause further harm to the entire automotive industry, as well as the local, state, and national economies. This escalation brings the number of striking UAW auto workers to more than 40,000. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow was down 190 points. The Nasdaq up 34. S&P 500 down 7. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A New Hampshire Superior Court jury has handed up a guilty verdict in the murder trial of Logan Clegg. Todd Bookman reports Clegg was accused of killing a Concord couple on a walking trail near their apartment last year. The killing of Stephen and Wendy Reed, a married couple in their 60s, sparked a six-month manhunt and concern in Concord due to the seemingly random nature of the violence. Police used surveillance footage from nearby grocery stores and credit card receipts to ultimately track down Logan Clegg. Clegg was staying in a tent in the woods near the spot of the killing at the time. He was on the run from a probation violation in Utah and using a string of aliases. Clegg was arrested in Vermont with a gun, a fake Romanian passport, and a one-way ticket to Germany. His attorneys argued all the evidence against him was circumstantial and that there was no motive and no DNA linking him to the scene. Clegg, who's 27, will be sentenced on second-degree murder charges at a later date. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Governor Maura Healey and Attorney General Andrea Campbell are putting out guidance to strengthen equity in schools and colleges. They unveiled their recommendations today at UMass Boston. Governor Healey said the con- they concern ways K-12 through schools and higher education institutions can support students from underrepresented groups. Now, we know there's been concern and confusion about what is legal and allowable now. These guidelines make clear every campus's continued rights and continued opportunities to expand access and advance equity and inclusion on every campus. The recommendations come after the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling over the summer that effectively ended race-conscious college admissions. A heads-up for drivers who may use the Mass Turnpike through downtown Boston in the overnight hours. Starting tonight, there will be lane closures in both directions in the vicinity of Boylston Street and Newbury Street for paving work. The closures will be in place Monday through Thursday from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. for approximately the next two weeks. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Clouds have moved in for the evening and overnight hours tonight. Should head down to the low 40s. Tomorrow's sunny and really nice. Pretty much uh, temperatures like today in the low 60s. And then they should move up as the week continues. Could reach 70 by Wednesday, even higher later. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morven Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases, in a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. An overwhelming majority of Americans say children should have active shooter drills in schools. But a new NPR Ipsos poll finds that how to conduct those drills and what safety measures schools should invest in is divisive. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. Both parents and the general public at large agree. Gun violence is one of the top concerns around K-12 education. But our NPR Ipsos poll also finds that depending on who you ask, you'll get different answers on how to approach the problem. You see this really deep partisan divide that has sort of crystallized here. That's Mallory Newell, vice president at Ipsos. On the type of investment and the type of priority that we should have when it comes to school safety. The poll looked at three different measures to keep children safe in schools. Social and emotional measures, security measures, and training measures. People in the poll who identified as Democrats are more inclined than Republicans to support investing in social and emotional measures, like guidance counselors, anti-bullying campaigns, and increased mental health education, over expanded security measures. And the difference is big, 65% to 38%. Republicans strongly favored expanded security measures, like metal detectors, bulletproof glass, or clear backpacks, over social and emotional measures. But it goes beyond that. There's actually a little bit of a partisan difference when it comes to the type of active shooter drill that they support in schools. And an overwhelming majority of Americans, 88%, support basic lockdown procedures. But differences start to come up when it comes to how to conduct these drills. In some schools, administrators go for a very realistic simulation. Amy Klinger, founder and director of programs for the nonprofit Educators School Safety Network, is opposed to such measures. The time that you're spending trying to come up with how can we replicate gunfire and how can we make blood and how can we have victims and how can we do all of these things really have no training value for educators. In our NPR Ipsos poll, parents agree. While support starts high for lockdowns in general, it drops as the options become more graphic. For instance, only about one in three Americans and parents say that they support the use of the sound of a gun or gunshots during an active shooter drill in schools. Rather than coming up with the comprehensive solution, we have said if we only had more counselors, we would have no more shootings. If we only had no more guns, we'd have no more shootings. If we only had everybody was armed in school, none of those things are correct. She says that any one of these solutions by itself is not enough. I talked to one parent in Southern California, Carla Nardoni. She's got two kids, one in middle school and one in the 10th grade. She says even though her children attend school in the same city she did, their experiences around gun violence have been vastly different. I went to school in L.A. in the early 90s, but they did have metal detectors and they did search our bags for weapons. But the only lockdown she ever had was not a drill. It was the L.A. riots in 1992. She remembers being overwhelmed and getting rounded up into her school's auditorium for safety. Alternatively, 
Her kids have had lockdown drills every year since they were in kindergarten. And it's a different story. Honestly, in a way, they're kind of apathetic about it. They they care and they think it's awful and they don't understand why it's this way, but it's just so normal. Like, they don't get really worked up about it. Like a lot of parents, Nardoni says that even though lockdowns and drills are a new phenomenon, if it keeps their kids safe, that's what matters. Any parent can go on and on and on about school shootings and having to send their kids to school. I mean, I never, ever let my children leave the house without saying love you ever, you know, and that and that's the reason why. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. Women's professional soccer is drawing record attendance. It is spawning expansion teams. But despite the growing popularity, no U.S. team plays in a stadium of its own. As Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, a new stadium going up in Kansas City will change that, maybe launch a new era in women's sports. Kansas City has a painful history with women's soccer. It had a team, FC Casey, that won two national championships before owners pulled the plug. The new team is the Kansas City Current. Make some noise for your Kansas City Current! But like all U.S. women's soccer clubs, the Current plays in a stadium built for another team. But that's changing, and fans like Maribeth Thompson and Aaron Atherton are stoked. Women get their own stadium, and we get to be put on the map. It's, it's incredible to happen to live in a city that's building the first stadium for a women's professional team. Like, I can't believe our luck. So, like, we can't wait for it to open and to go to that first game. But there's a lot of work to do between now and the home opener. So it's hurry up time. We're getting close to the finish line. Got to be ready to play soccer in March. Uh And as you can see, it's still a construction site. Scott Jenkins, vice president of facilities development for the Kansas City Current, is walking past heavy equipment, big holes in the ground, toward the swooping white steel frame of a budding new stadium. You know, this is everything a world-class stadium is going to be. I would say it's intimate and it's purpose-built for women's sports. For one thing, it's going to be relatively small. Arrowhead Stadium, where the Kansas City Chiefs play football, holds more than 76,000 people. The new KC Current Stadium will top out initially at 11,500. I'm looking forward to seeing it packed. Katrina Hawkins, who runs the team's fan club, says all the seats will be close to the action. Players won't see empty stands, and the stadium's engineered to be extra loud. It'll be decked in teal and red, the KC Current's team colors. But the fan club is called KC Blue Crew. That name honors the team's earlier women's soccer team, the one abandoned by ownership. Hawkins says the new $125 million stadium is a concrete commitment to the future of women's soccer here. When you invest money in something, it shows that you respect people. And I think that's something that women's sports have long needed and deserved. Part of the money for the new stadium comes from Brittany Mahomes, who played college soccer before marrying Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes. The Casey Current's other co-owners are professional investors. Chris Long, I'm the CEO and founder of Palmer Square Capital Management. Long's enthusiastic about women's soccer. Same with his daughter and wife. He says the new stadium is making a statement, but mainly it's about making money. We think this has multiples of growth in it. And we've spent a lot of time around the financial modeling. We did a ton of due diligence. Long says the new stadium is close to being sold out for next year. And season tickets are steep, upwards of $600. The stadium's going up in a long neglected section of Riverfront, fueling a marketing buzz around the team. The current's not all that successful, 
and yet its flags and t-shirts are all over town. Game attendance regularly breaks records, and the club is already worth more than all but two other National Women's Soccer League teams. Which brings in more and more investors, brings in more and more corporate sponsors, brings a higher level of media. There's very much a momentum begets momentum uh, approach to um, showing what facilities can do for professional women's sports. Long says that showing the potential of building a new women's soccer stadium in a smaller city, smack in the middle of the country, could help other teams move out of men's arenas, get stadiums of their own, and start closing the huge financial gap between men's and women's sports. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Financially, farmers are dealing with a lot right now. Farming is getting more expensive as crop prices are dropping. And lately, farmers in Georgia and other agricultural states have been raising the alarm about white-tailed deer, which can cause millions of dollars worth of damage. Sophie Gratis with Georgia Public Broadcasting reports there is little farmers can do about the problem. Driving through the Lee family farm in Dawson, Georgia, Neil Lee says white-tailed deer are eating through his family's 10,000-acre row crop farm. This year has been by far worse than I've ever seen. In one of the farm's cotton fields. Yeah, they, they should be a plant every five or six inches. But as it, as it comes up, they just steady bite it off. Patches of dirt surround young cotton bushes with snapped branches and missing cotton bowls. The young bowls like that are still real. Juicy. It's the deer's favorite snack. See the tracks here? Deer tracks. And then if you look, I mean, just all this should be cotton. It's not. Some miles away in one of Lee's soybean fields, the plants are ankle height near the tree line, half as tall as they should be. His peanut field looks mowed down. Lee says he's likely incurred damages in the six-figure range. We think this is one of the most like pressing issues that farmers across the state are facing right now. Adam Bellflower lobbies for the Georgia Farm Bureau. He says lately the Bureau's been hearing about deer in more fields. I would say it's the complaints are starting to come from more different, more commodities has been, been the big thing that we've learned. Like in cotton. We're seeing farmers that are losing significant yield. Georgia is not alone in all of this. Reports from Alabama, North Carolina, and South Carolina this year have shown row crop farmers reporting increased losses from deer damage. But while some farmers swear there are just more deer, Populations in Georgia are stable. The number of deer in North Georgia has actually gone down due to habitat changes and more bears and coyotes. Charlie Kilmaster is the deer biologist for the state of Georgia. He says the more money farmers can get for what they grow, the more likely they see deer damage as a problem. As the value of crops, the amount that they can be sold for goes up, the, the number of deer control permits goes up. Deer control permits are issued by the state and allow farmers to shoot a limited number of deer in their fields. Sorry, Bambi fans. So the price for all crops has increased by almost 30 percent since 2021, but it's also gotten a lot more expensive to grow them. So farmers are less likely to pay for preventative measures against deer, like fencing, says Adam Bellflower with the Georgia Farm Bureau. If you're operating on thin margins because seed is more expensive, because fertilizer is more expensive, because diesel is more expensive, because equipment's more expensive, anything on top of that is going to make it harder to remain profitable. For Neil Lee, back in Dawson, these financial stressors are all too familiar. 
I mean, I've enjoyed farming, but um, it is getting it's tough right now to survive. Lee has gotten permits to shoot deer on his land. It's helped, but those permits expire by the time hunting season rolls around in October. I feel like this is going to be, it's going to be this bad or worse for years to come until something is done. And I don't know what the answer is. Um, I do know that more need to be killed. To do that, he's planning to lease his land to hunters this fall in hopes of getting some extra protection for his crops. For NPR News, I'm Sophie Gratis in Dawson, Georgia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And just like that, there are nine Republican candidates for Speaker of the House. The breakdown and the challenges they face coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes. This is not funded WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, falling to nearly 40 degrees. Then for tomorrow, the sunshine should break through. A good share of sunshine during the day. Breezy and nice. Highs about 62 degrees. Speaking of nice, Wednesday should be sunny again, warming to nearly 70. Could make it into the 70s for the second half of the work week. 60 now in Boston at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. Florida has restricted teaching black history in schools, so black churches stepped in. Well, the church is going to always be an educational institution, period. We teach people how to live their lives, how to raise their families, how to plan for their future. We teach. That's what we do. Can a church do what the state will not? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There is still a lot we don't know about the blast that killed hundreds of people last week at a hospital in Gaza. Experts and online sleuths have been debating how it happened and who is responsible. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has been trying to stay on top of it all. He is here with us now. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, so the basic question, what do we know about what happened at this hospital? I think it's important to remember we do know a lot. We know hundreds of Palestinians were sheltering in the courtyard of the Al-Ahli Hospital in um, Gaza. They thought it was safe. Then just before 7 p.m. local time, a barrage of rockets was fired out of Gaza. And right after that, there's a terrible explosion at the hospital. Just horrific carnage and and hundreds dead. Absolutely horrific. And then right after that, Hamas claimed it was an Israeli airstrike. They did not present evidence to support that. Israel says it was a failed militant rocket that fell short. Just help us cut through. What, what does the publicly available evidence support? 
Actually, you know, the publicly available evidence is problematic for both versions of the story. So let's start with the Hamas claim of an airstrike. Pretty much everyone agrees, uh, all the experts I've spoken to so far, that the visual evidence doesn't support a standard airstrike. There's no big crater, there's not a lot of shrapnel or structural damage to the hospital, and there's no pieces of shrapnel found at the site. That would be pretty unusual. But, you know, the Israeli claim that it was a failed rocket, there's a problem there, too. Israel says rockets came from the West, and independent video supports that. But the video closest to the blast, you can hear the sound of something whizzing by. That's called a Doppler shift. It's that rise and fall and pitch of something passing you like a car that goes vroom. An NGO called Earshot analyzed that sound and found whatever fell likely came from the east, not the west. Here's their director, Lawrence Abu Hamdan. So we're saying that it reduces the probability that this is coming from the west. It's rocket science after all, so we can't completely rule it out. And what he means is a misfire rocket could have changed direction and come back and hit the hospital, but the Israeli army needs to explain why this sound seems to point to the opposite direction of the initial rocket fire. So will we ever know? Will we ever know what happened here? You know, the truth is this was a very complex situation. It was at night. All the experts I spoke to today were doubtful the public evidence will give a straight answer. And I also heard this feeling that the online obsession with pinning blame was maybe a little counterproductive. Mark Garlasco is a former U.M. war crimes investigator. I totally get why people are concerned about this. You know, a lot of people died and it was a horrible thing. But man, there's been a lot of people killed since that incident, right? Mark Garlasco there. uh, Jeff Brumfield, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a modest plaque at the Charlestown Navy Yard that marks a horrific event on the Boston waterfront. The plaque reads, In memory of our shipmates and civilians lost in the disastrous explosion aboard the USS Leyte. The blast happened 70 years ago this month. It killed 37 men, including five civilians. The U.S. Naval Institute says it was the largest loss of life ever on the Boston waterfront. And it's forgotten, mostly. In July 1953, there was a truce in the Korean War. In Korea, three years of combat end as United Nations and Communist negotiators at Panmunjom sign a truce. The long war undertaken to stop red aggression is over. The USS Leyte was given two battle stars for distinguished service in Korea. The warship was enormous. It could carry 100 aircraft and 1,400 sailors who spread across several decks. Three months after the truce in Korea, the Leyte was in Boston. She was moored at the massive South Boston Naval Annex. Jim Sickless remembers those days well. He's now 92 years old and lives in Arlington. In 1953, he was a petty officer third class on the craft. I was assigned to the USS Leyte, and I was aboard it for one week when the explosion occurred on the ship. The explosion was thunderous. It happened at 3.15 in the afternoon. All the clocks on board stopped. Some of the sailors were in training classes. Some were changing clothes to go out on leave. As for Sickless... I was on the dock, taking supplies from the dock, bringing it aboard the ship, and there was a commotion aboard the ship when everybody said, fire, fire. And when that happened, I dropped everything, and I helped the sailors uh, with water hoses. So I did the best to help as much as I could. 
Billows of black smoke spewed from the craft and filled the air across the Navy Yard. David Hannigan is a park guide with the Boston National Historical Park. He picks up the timeline. Flames mushroomed through the forward part of the ship, belched into the air about 25 feet above the hangar deck. An oil line was ruptured that began to fuel the fire. You just would see burning and scorching. Men were hurled across the flight deck. Witnesses said the blast started four decks below the flight deck in the catapult room. The catapult is the slingshot technology that helps propel planes when there's little runway. At least one explosion followed, maybe two. Firefighters said temperatures hit 200 degrees. They could feel the heat from the steel decks through their boots. Rescuers poured water into the smoldering hatches as Navy men let everyone out of the brig. Some braved the smoke and found bodies of sailors lying in water and oil. They dragged them up the escape hatches to safety, or tried to. Some people suspected sabotage, but the Navy concluded that a valve leaked flammable hydraulic fluid and a spark ignited the fire. Could have happened when someone flipped on a light switch. Again, Petty Officer Jim Sickless. After the fire, they called everybody aboard to get onto the hangar deck so they could count who was alive and who was not alive. And after they did that, they furnished us with coins to call our families. The family of a civilian machinist who was on board the vessel never got that call. My name is Sylvie Herald. I was born in Somerville, Mass. I live on the Cape now in Falmouth. October 16, 1953 was a special day for him. It was his ninth birthday, and when his father finished work, there was going to be cake. I remember that before he went to work, he said, I'll see you when I get home. Selby Harold's father died on the USS Leyte that day. His name was also Selby. Two Navy men came to the house to tell the family there'd been an accident. Harold turned 79 years old this October 16th. His brother mentions that it's the anniversary of their dad's death, but Harold doesn't dwell on it. I guess she becomes stronger and we grew up pretty much on our own. My mother, she says, you know, to stay out of trouble, which we did. <laughs> so I'm doing okay in life. The South Boston Naval Shipyard is no more. It's now the Raymond Flynn Marine Park. When park ranger David Hannigan is at the site, he is likely one of the few Bostonians who reflect on the tragedy that seems to have disappeared from memory. You can't help but think about an event like this because prior to the late disaster, there had gone 19 years without a single fatality at the Navy Yard, which is remarkable, especially considering that during the Second World War, the peak labor force was in excess of 51,000 men and women. And in all the years that America was fighting the war, there wasn't a single life lost at Boston Naval Shipyard. The USS Leyte returned to sea three months later. She was decommissioned in 1959 and sold for scrap in 1970. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. 
More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. WBUR supporters include Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert, research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomen's.org. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The October 7th attacks by Hamas have been called Israel's 9-11, but experts warn that in the wake of 9-11, the U.S. made mistakes. The so-called global war on terror led to the U.S. violating human rights. It did huge damage to America's reputation. It's Monday, October 23rd, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, nine Republicans have announced plans to run for Speaker of the House, but they seem to face the same problems the last contenders did. No clear path to winning. Also, as we live longer, more Americans are finding meaningful work late in life. What does late in life mean anymore? I'm reasonably healthy, and it's not just me. I mean, this is a phenomenon that we're seeing all across this nation. The third act coming up on WBUR. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Hamas has released two more hostages. The International Committee of the Red Cross confirmed the release today, and Israeli media say the two are elderly women whose husbands remain among more than 200 still being held in Gaza. And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says some of them could be Americans. I want to be careful with an exact number because we still have 10 unaccounted for Americans and we don't know where they are. It's possible that some of them or all of them could be in the hostage pool. Kirby spoke to Fox News after word of today's hostage release, the second since Friday when an American woman and her daughter were released. The U.S. is reported to be urging Israel to delay a ground offensive to allow more time for hostage negotiations. Israel's military has been unleashing a barrage of airstrikes on Gaza, hitting areas where Palestinians were told by Israel to seek shelter. The death toll is rising and borders are sealed. Hundreds of American citizens are believed to be among those stranded. And Pierce Jackie Northam reports from Jerusalem. The Rafah crossing was opened briefly today for a third delivery of uh, humanitarian aid, carrying food, medicine, and water for Gaza. The Palestinian Red Crescent said 20 trucks carrying humanitarian aid crossed through the Rafah border and into Gaza. It was the third delivery in as many days. Fuel was not included in the convoy. Israel won't allow it into Gaza, and hospitals there say they're struggling to keep generators running. Relief workers say the supplies are just a fraction of what's needed for the more than 700,000 Palestinians who fled their homes in northern Gaza to escape Israeli airstrikes. But the strikes have followed them to the south. Israeli warplanes have pounded the area with rockets. Palestinian officials in Gaza say more than 5,000 civilians have been killed in the ongoing strikes and thousands more injured. Jackie Northam, NPR News, 
Jerusalem. And Alaska Airlines flight was forced to make an unexpected landing last night. NPR's Joel Rose reports an off-duty pilot allegedly attempted to disable the aircraft's engines. Alaska Airlines says a flight from Everett, Washington to San Francisco had to be diverted after an off-duty pilot who was riding in the cockpit attempted to, quote, disrupt the operation of the engines. Here's one of the pilots speaking to air traffic control via liveatc.net. Okay, I'll just uh, give you a heads up. We've got the uh, guy that tried to shut the engines down uh, out of the cockpit. The flight, which was operated by Horizon Airlines, was diverted to Portland, where it landed safely and the passenger was arrested. He's now facing 83 counts of attempted murder, among other charges. It's not unusual for off-duty pilots to catch a ride in the jump seat behind the pilot and first officer. Joel Rose, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day mix. The Dow was down 190 points and NASDAQ up 34. And you're listening to NPR News. Good afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan is withdrawing from Harvard fellowships at the Kennedy School and the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hogan said in a letter to Harvard's president and posted on social media that he's reacting to the university's response to the war in the Middle East. He said he cannot condone the, quote, dangerous anti-Semitism that's taken root on campus. He cites a statement by more than 30 student groups who condemned Israel's role in the surprise attacks by Hamas. Hogan said the university did not issue a strong enough stance against the statement. Harvard President Claudine Gay said in remarks today that anti-Semitism has no place at the university. Anita Mann is hoping for a safe return of three Israeli relatives who were captured by Hamas on October 7th. Jason Greenberg has not heard from 50-year-old Ofer, 16-year-old Sahar, or 12-year-old Erez Calderon since then. Israeli officials told Greenberg last week that two other relatives who were captured were found dead at the Gaza border. A terrible sense of relief to know that Carmela and Noya weren't continuing to suffer, that their suffering was relatively, not necessarily painless, but quick as compared to Ofer Sahar and, and Erez, who, you know, as far as we know, are still in captivity. Carmela was 80. Her granddaughter, Noya, was 13. The causes of their death are not known. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is applauding the Environmental Protection Agency's push for a full ban on a chemical that's been linked to a cluster of childhood cancer cases in the state. Trichorethylene, or TCE, has been tied to 21 cases of childhood leukemia in Woburn, where several chemical companies once operated. Markey joined members of the EPA in Woburn to celebrate the proposed ban and remember the children, such as Jimmy Anderson, of Woburn who died from TCE exposure. And today we remember Jimmy and all those kids who didn't stand a chance against toxic chemical pollution. So we come together in resolution as we commit to banishing the toxic legacy of this chemical to the history books once and for all. TCE is a solvent used in cleaning and furniture care products and degreasers. The public has the next 45 days to comment on the proposed ban. Forecast lots of clouds overnight tonight should be down around 43 degrees. Then for tomorrow, a good share of sunshine should reach just about the low 60s once again. It is 60 now in Boston at 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you are keeping count at home, it has now been 20 days since House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted 
20 days that the House of Representatives, and thus the United States Congress, have not been able to make laws. In that time, House Republicans nominated two other candidates for Speaker, but neither could attract enough votes from within their conference to win the job. Today, nine new candidates make their pitches to serve as Speaker. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now from the Capitol. And Deirdre, nine? Really? Right. (laughs) It's a big field. It's a big field. Anybody emerging as a favorite? It's really hard to say because the House Republican Conference is just so divided right now. Tom Emmer is one of the nine. He's currently the number three House Republican leader in charge of vote counting. So operationally, he has an edge. Emmer ran the House Republicans campaign arm for two cycles. He's traveled and campaigned with a lot of members. I ran into Emmer today and he said he thinks members can come together tonight. Two other candidates I'm watching who also are in leadership positions already, Mike Johnson from Louisiana and Gary Palmer from Alabama. Deirdre, um, former President Trump endorsed Jim Jordan, who, alert listeners will note, has not become Speaker Jordan. He ended his run after losing three ballots on the House floor. Um, Will he be involved in this race? It doesn't look like it. I mean, campaigning in New Hampshire today, Trump told reporters he's talked to most of the candidates running for speaker, but he's staying out of the race. It is worth noting that Emmer and another candidate running, Austin Scott from Georgia, both voted to certify the 2020 election results. So they've actually broken with Trump on a big issue that he cares about. So we mentioned you're at the Capitol. How long a night might you be looking at tonight? Do we know if they're going to vote, when they're going to vote? It's going to be a little long. All nine candidates get the chance tonight to present their vision for how they want to bring the party together and run the House. The House is pretty frozen right now. It's a closed door meeting. They're going to have uh, speeches and they'll take questions. It's really been a free for all since that second nominee that you mentioned, Jim Jordan, was forced out of his run on Friday. There's been a lot of calls, members you know, sending around letters with their plans. The vote, internal vote, happens tomorrow morning, but it could take several rounds and maybe all day. All day. Okay. And you mentioned Emmer. Tell me about the other eight candidates who are running. Right. Some of the people I'm watching include Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma. He's pitching his business experience. He was in management at McDonald's before he was elected to the House. He's also talking about his current role. He chairs the Republican Study Committee, a large group of fiscal conservatives. He says that's a selling point. We have 80 percent of the conference, which is the House Freedom Caucus, all the way to problem solvers and everybody in between. And we work on policy that we all agree on. There's also Byron Donalds from Florida. He's an African-American elected just in 2020. He's the one member of the House Freedom Caucus, the far-right group of members who's running. A couple of others include Pete Sessions from Texas, was once in leadership, wants to get back in. There's also Michigan Republican Jack Bergman. He's a retired Marine who's touting his military experience. Okay, so I'm just trying to keep my eyes on the timing. If Republicans do actually agree on one of these nine, do we know when that full House would vote? Possibly as soon as tomorrow night. The temporary speaker, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, says he wants the nomination to move quickly from the internal vote to the floor. But then we get back to the same issue Republicans have been having for three weeks. Can any Republican who wins the internal vote unite almost all House Republicans and get the 217 votes they would need on the House floor? Last week, there was a move to expand McHenry's powers so the House could actually function and and bring up bills as this you know, election continues to uh, to settle out. If Republicans can't coalesce around a member this week, we could see that proposal to allow McHenry some, to do some additional things 
resurface this week. Thank you, Deirdre. Thanks, Mary Louise. And Pierre's Deirdre Walsh. The attacks by Hamas on October 7th have been called Israel's 9-11. While President Biden visited Jerusalem in a show of support, he also delivered a warning. The United States made mistakes in the wake of the September 11th attacks. NPR's Quill Lawrence spoke to diplomats and military planners about what that warning means for Gaza. If you ask those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan what lessons they have, it's not as much about the fighting. It's about how to rebuild after. We got the first half of combat operations right, but after that, we ran into trouble. What we learned from our wars is you can't just go in, destroy an enemy, and then leave. It was, it was incredibly challenging, and I, I don't think the military is always the best organization to do that rebuilding, but it's often the only organization that can. That was Raphael Cohen, Emma Skye, and Donnie Hasseltine. We'll hear more from all of them. Hasseltine was a Marine officer in Iraq after the U.S. campaign that destroyed the city of Fallujah, which he says is the closest parallel to what Israel faces now. Even if you destroy every terrorist in Gaza, you still have a case where you have an area without resources, without jobs, and a very young population. And when you combine those things together, that is the breeding ground for almost every terrorist organization in history. But even if the U.S. learned that post-war planning is important... It's not something the U.S. actually ever did very well, says Raphael Cohen. He was an army officer in Iraq. He's now at RAND. You have to begin thinking about these issues ahead of time. It's not something easy to do. It's not something that we have a template that we can sell the Israelis on. Like, well, if you only follow these five steps, this is going to fix your problem. But, he says, from Israel's side, Hamas is an existential threat that has now killed more than a 1,000 Israeli civilians. And just like it would be inconceivable for, well, then-President Bush and the United States government not to do something in a big way after 9-11, I think it would be extraordinarily hard for the Israelis to do the same here in Gaza. The political calculus is such that they have to go in, regardless of the consequences. Veteran diplomat Emma Skye advised U.S. commanders in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Israel. She says the U.S. had trouble empowering new governments in Iraq and Afghanistan, in part because the Americans had lost moral authority. I think there's a really important lesson in dehumanization. After 9-11, and you had the so-called global war on terror, the response to that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Muslims. It led to the U.S. violating human rights, and it did huge damage to America's reputation in the world. She says it's the same thing if Israel makes no distinction between all the Palestinians living in Gaza and the Hamas members and other militants Israel wants to deter. If there's no clear military target to an Israeli airstrike, it can just look like blind revenge. That's another lesson from 9-11, says Carter Malkazian. So after 9-11, we wanted to destroy al-Qaeda and make sure they couldn't do it again. And of course, the United States never officially um, did anything in, in Iraq or Afghanistan because of vengeance. He advised American generals in Afghanistan and Iraq during the worst battles of those wars. However, to say that vengeance wasn't present um, would be definitely incorrect. As one starts to fight, um, and as casualties are suffered on the other side then that will create their own feelings of vengeance. And so that, that can create a, a larger, more difficult conflict. And not just within Israel and the Palestinian territories, says Emma Sky. Russia and China trying to present themselves as the leaders of the global south. And of course, you're listening to the language coming out of Iran. And so it all becomes, whatever's happening in Gaza becomes a proxy war 
for something much bigger globally. And with President Biden's embrace of Israel, its actions in this war carry consequences for the U.S. as well. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Week 7 of the NFL season concludes tonight. But for fans who tuned into yesterday's Bears-Raiders game, many are asking the same question. Where on earth did Tyson Bagent come from? The rookie quarterback got his first start when the Bears' go-to QB was sidelined with a thumb injury. And Bajan, he definitely rose to the occasion. He completed more than 20 passes, and more importantly... Tyson Bajan, most important stats is no giveaways. Bajan had flown under most people's radar, in part because NFL scouts have a strong preference for Division I players. The 23-year-old rookie hails from little old Division II Shepherd University, home to just over 3,000 students. Last night, though, he captured the hearts of all of Bears Nation as he led Chicago to their first home victory in more than a year. Here's the call on Fox Sports. Bajan on the run. Throws on the sideline. The catch made by... Now, it isn't out of the ordinary for rookie quarterbacks' eyes to get as big as saucers in their first game and for their nerves to be through the roof. So last night, the Bears coaching staff decided to use the young QB's adrenaline to his advantage and took the ball first. Here's Bajent speaking to reporters after the game. Your coach told me that he chose to receive the ball to start the game because he wanted to calm the nerves of his young quarterback. Tyson, was there one second today your nerves needed to be calm? Definitely had nerves today. I appreciate Coach looking out for me. Okay, so to be clear, Bajent didn't put up Hall of Fame-like numbers. It was instead his grit and composure that left announcers impressed. But he threw a touchdown by checking it down underneath, got him out of a jam a couple times with his legs. He played a clean game. And the victory was made even sweeter for Bajent when he received the game ball. Hey, y'all had my back from the jump, man. You know, we had adversity last week, Justin going down. And, you know, right from the get, y'all had my back. So I couldn't appreciate y'all anymore. Couldn't have did that without y'all today. And glad we go out there and get a good While the Bears' regular quarterback remains sidelined for now with that thumb injury, Bajan's performance did have one unintended side effect. It unleashed a firestorm in Chicago sports media over who the Bears' starting quarterback should be on a permanent basis. Last night, Bajan had some advice for players who feel overlooked because of the name of the school on the front of their jerseys. Man, I would just, you know, I always resort to just the work that needs to be done. Don't ever stop working. Don't ever let anybody's opinion stop you from chasing what you want. So the pride of Shepherd University will likely have a few more chances to make his case for the starting role and to put his school on the map. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The business news and forecast are coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. 
On Wall Street, ups and downs today to start off the week. The Dow lost about six-tenths of a percent. S&P was down about two-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq snapped a four-day streak of losses. It finished up just over a quarter of a percent. One of the state's fastest-growing companies is agreeing to a $4 billion buyout. Engage Smart is a customer engagement and payment software provider. It has about 1,000 workers, 140 in Massachusetts. It reports that the purchase it's being purchased by an affiliate of Vista Equity Partners. The deal is expected to close in the first quarter of next year. Coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes, the ruling party in Argentina did surprisingly well in this weekend's presidential election, coming in first despite facing the worst economy in decades. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Music Worcester, presenting Grammy-winning mandolinist, composer, and singer Chris Thiele with the Knights Orchestra at Mechanics Hall, October 27th. MusicWorcester.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Starts off as a pretty nice day. Lots of clouds around now, and they should stick around overnight tonight. Temperatures about 43 overnight. Tomorrow could reach the low 60s with a good share of sunshine. Wednesday should be sunny and milder. Could make it to 70 degrees. 60 now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Oil prices have been pushed higher as the war in the Middle East continues. Those prices have renewed debate here in the U.S. over how much drilling should be allowed on federal land. The Biden administration had proposed dramatically scaling that back in western states and is now finalizing new rules for a system that's been in place for 100 years. But as NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, the reforms aren't sitting well in America's oil patch. Farmington, New Mexico, was built on fossil fuels. The first modern oil well drilled in the petroleum-rich Mancus Shale here in 1960 even has a nickname, Edna. Man, they were a long ways from anywhere when they got it up and, and drilled that well. Marion Oil and Gas drilled it. Manager George Sharp points to a historic photo of the towering well inside the company's airy lobby. Took a lot more uh, gonads than I got, so. (laughs) Today, the federal land around Farmington is dotted with tens of thousands of oil and gas wells. These helped New Mexico shatter a state record for crude oil production last year. The state now accounts for 13% of the country's total supply. Most of the drilling in the Mancus Shale over the last five to six years has been in the oil window, but the real 
potential is in the gas window in northern New Mexico, southern Colorado. And there's a lot of untapped potential, Sharp says, but the U.S. government is making it harder for small companies like his to explore for it. He's talking specifically about the Biden administration's new onshore leasing rule. Let me, let me read one of these things. This is, this is actually The proposed from, rule would do things like requiring rule. companies to pay way more for new drilling permits on federal land and put up more money to cover cleanup costs should they go bankrupt later. They really need to be focused on making sure we do it right, making sure the feds are getting what they deserve, mm-hmm. making sure it's done, you know, uh, you know, we're protecting the environment. But their stated goal on this is to make it harder and to have less of it. In Farmington, the timing of this rule is seen as ironic. New Mexico is now second only to Texas in oil production. But like the Biden administration, Democratic state leaders in Santa Fe have passed sweeping laws aimed at transitioning the state's economy away from fossil fuels. James Povey-Wa sits on the governor's Sustainable Economy Task Force. Well, oil and gas is not going to be around forever. And I think that we need to take this opportunity to plan ahead. When he says opportunity, he means the state's $3.5 billion budget surplus, largely thanks to oil. He says it will help fund workforce training in solar and wind and help communities transition away from a dependence on the boom and bust of fossil fuels. What we heard from New Mexicans from around the state is that they really want to stay in their home communities, but there aren't jobs that can keep them there. Farmington in the state's isolated northwest corner has been dealing with this very problem. One massive coal power plant and mine recently shuttered, and another nearby on the Navajo Nation is in the process of closing as demand from the west coast has tanked. Now, city leaders have been starting to market Farmington's public lands for something other than just fossil fuels, outdoor recreation. Yeah. I'll catch you guys. There's now a mountain bike park on federal land outside town. Another one is planned. They're also trying to lure more outdoor companies to manufacture products like rafts, hunting rifles, or mountain bikes. Amy Conley coaches a local youth riding group here. I mean, we need something to, you know, to keep people wanting to come this way um, now that the oil field is kind of um, decrease. Most of Conley's family worked in the oil field, and she wants to see her hometown keep thriving. And there's tons of potential. I mean, we have the river, we have, I mean, just, we, it's there. There is hope that if the drilling really does slow down, maybe managers of the federal land here could at least devote more staff and money to building new campgrounds and trails and cleaning up abandoned wells that pockmark the nearby canyons and badlands. My name is Nate Duckett. I am the mayor of the city of Farmington. Mayor Duckett says that would help boost his town's outdoor recreation economy, but he doesn't think it should come at the expense of limiting drilling. You can't replace $100,000 a year jobs that are in oil and gas with jobs in outdoor recreation. That doesn't work. There's anxiety here that towns like Farmington could be left behind, forgotten, in a full-blown energy transition. Yeah, I mean, if they stopped all production on federal lands, that would be awful for our area. Yeah, it would be, it would be decimating. The Biden administration's new drilling restrictions could be put into place by early next year. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Farmington, New Mexico. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Katie Ortman Doble. In 2014, Katie was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer called ocular melanoma. Doctors gave her 16 months to live. 
Her father was a physician himself. He was able to find a clinical trial that could save her life. So a few days after Christmas, Katie flew to New York to see if she would qualify for that trial. And as she endured a series of different tests, she found herself missing her mom. She could look at me and she could tell what kind of mood I was in or what was wrong. And she would say, I think you need an energy hug. And so those were hugs that she'd squeeze extra tight and extra long. And fast forward to December of 2014, um, I was just desperate for one of those hugs for my mom. And unfortunately, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when I was 13 years old, and she passed away when I was 15. So at this point in my life, I'm 32 years old, and I'm sitting in the waiting room, and my brother and I had been there for two days, and it had been a rush of running all over Midtown Manhattan and getting to these appointments. So I had eye exams, I had blood work, I had scans, I had EKGs and echocardiograms. And we were down to the wire. We had two appointments left. One was my echocardiogram and one was meeting with the doctor to find out if I was eligible for this treatment. So my brother is waiting on one floor for my name to be called and I'm sitting in the waiting room all by myself, two floors above him. And I look over and I see this girl who looked to be about my age. And she has her head laying in her mother's lap. And her mom was stroking her hair and pushing it behind her ears. And I was just so jealous <laughs> um, and missing my mom and missing those energy hugs. And so I watched this play out and I wondered about this girl. I wondered why she was there. And the woman comes out to call someone's name and the girl gets up and I watch her go back and when I turn my head back around, the mom is standing right in front of me. And she says to me, you look like you could use a mom hug. <laughs> and I immediately, um, if I hadn't already been, I immediately started bawling. And I just desperately nodded my head and I said, yes. <laughs> and so she just wrapped her arms around me. And I just pictured my mom's arms and I just pretended like that was my mom hugging me. And it was just one of those moments in life where somebody showed up and gave you something that you needed. Nothing like a mom hug. Katie Ortman Doble of Denver, Colorado. In the summer of 2023, Katie and her family celebrated her second anniversary of being cancer-free. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. This is NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR, can we really reinvent ourselves at age 60, 70, or after? Just listen to our guests in our series, Third Acts. That's on the way here at 90.9. Clouds are moving in for the evening and overnight hours. Temperatures should head down to the low 40s overnight. Then for tomorrow, should be sunny and nice. High temperatures in the low 60s. The time is 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform this Wednesday, emkinstitute.org, and UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. 
Florida has restricted teaching black history in schools, so black churches stepped in. Well, the church is going to always be an educational institution, period. We teach people how to live their lives, how to raise their families, how to plan for their future. We teach. That's what we do. Can a church do what the state will not? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The International Red Cross says it facilitated the release of two elderly women who were being held hostage by Hamas. It's the second such release, but more than 200 people are still being held, at least a few of them believed to be Americans. Meanwhile, the situation in Gaza is dire after Israel launched hundreds of airstrikes overnight. And Pierce Peter Kenyon has more. Another group of aid trucks did make its way uh, today. It had to stop in Israel on the way to be searched, carrying uh, food, water, and medicine, medical supplies perhaps, all of which are needed, but in much greater quantity. Uh, Gaza officials say hundreds of trucks used to arrive daily. Uh, Now, crucially for the hospitals in Gaza, no fuel is getting in so far. A doctor in the neonatal section at Al-Shifa Hospital told Reuters news agency that the lack of fuel could have deadly consequences. He said if the electricity goes out in his department, they could lose all 55 babies and incubators in as little as five minutes. NPR's Peter Kenyon reporting. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro's office will pay nearly $300,000 to settle a sexual harassment claim against a former senior aide. Ben Wasserstein of member station WITF reports that money, though, will come out of taxpayers' pockets. A woman who worked for former Legislative Affairs Secretary Mike Varib said he used lewd, vulgar, and demeaning language that objectified her. According to documents obtained through a public records request, a settlement was reached in early September, about three weeks before Varib resigned. All but $45,000 will be paid through the state's Employee Liability Self-Insurance Program. The rest will come from the governor's office. The governor's office agreed to provide sexual harassment training to all members of the policy and legislative affairs staff. The settlement also says the state and the governor's office deny liability and wrongdoing. Ben Wasserstein reporting. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The family from Medway, Mass., is among the Americans trapped in Gaza as the fighting continues between Hamas militants and Israel. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, conditions in Gaza are deteriorating, and word from one of the family members is that he doesn't know when or if they can leave. Aboud Okal, his wife, and one-year-old son were visiting family in Gaza when the war began more than two weeks ago. U.S. officials have told them Americans might be able to get into Egypt through the Rafah border crossing, but they've gone there four separate times and so far have not been able to cross. A friend of the family provided this recording of Okal from today, saying he's still hopeful his family will get out. Well, we're sad for the people that we would leave behind, the loved ones, the friends, all the civilians of Gaza. Um, we at least has a chance to save our son and leave Gaza to head back home to safety. The U.S. State Department says it continues to work to get Americans out of Gaza. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
A wake is going on until 8 tonight for Frank Chin, known as the unofficial mayor of Boston's Chinatown. Chin served as the city's purchasing agent under three mayors. He died earlier this month at the age of 91. A funeral will be held tomorrow. He'll be buried at Forest Hills Cemetery. Crews are in the process of installing hundreds of speed humps around Boston. It's part of a so-called safety surge, where the city plans to install 500 a year for the next three years. Speed humps are more gradually sloped than speed bumps, so drivers can comfortably go over them at 20 miles an hour. The newest are on and around Milton Street in Dorchester. And it's not too late to celebrate National Boston Cream Pie Day. You don't have long, though. The dessert was concocted around 1865 at the Omni Parker House in Boston. And the classic version is two circles of sponge cake with vanilla custard in the middle and chocolate icing on top. Parker House historian Susan Wilson says tourists often associate the hotel with a pie and the famous Parker House roll, and they forget all the other stuff. Do they remember that Jack Kennedy, you know, proposed to Jackie here? Probably not. Do they remember that John Wilkes Booth stayed here and practiced shooting the week before he assassinated Lincoln? Probably not. Those aren't the things that people remember. They remember the the pie and the rolls. Wilson will be at the Parker House tonight until 6 o'clock to talk about the pie's history and give away free slices. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. Should be chilly tonight, about 43 for a low. Tomorrow reaching the low 60s once again. A good share of sunshine. Wednesday, sunny and milder could nudge 70. 59 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Americans are living longer than we used to, and many are rejecting the old notion of three stages of life, learning, earning, and retiring. Instead, they're finding new chapters at age 60, 70, or even later. Today, WBR's Anthony Brooks has the story of Tom Andrew. He's a former coroner and now a youth pastor. He's one of the people we're profiling who've reinvented themselves in surprising and inspiring ways. It's evening at the Hidden Valley Scout Camp in central New Hampshire, and scouts have gathered to lower the flags. The staff is here, too, including Tom Andrew, the chaplain. He wears a scout uniform, green trousers, and khaki shirt with a purple neckerchief as he banters with some of the kids about this year's jamboree. It was fantastic, super fantastic, in fact. Were you a staff member? Or were you I was a chaplain there, yes. You were a chaplain, amazing. Yes, it was fun. It was the roots of Tom Andrews' religious faith were planted when he was growing up in Dayton, Ohio. He was a Boy Scout and says he preached his first sermon at the age of 14. Now, as a chaplain for the Scouts, he says it's less about preaching and more about being present. Basically, you're just here to hear them out. 
And if you can point them in a certain direction or help them find their own way, all the better. But it's by and large a ministry of presence and listening. Before becoming a chaplain, Tom worked a full career as a doctor and spent 20 years as the chief medical examiner of New Hampshire. He witnessed up close the grim toll of car accidents, gunshot wounds, poisonings, assaults, and suicides. Bad stuff that would give anyone a skewed view of life and death. Absolutely. A medical examiner sees a skewed view of everything because it has ended fatally. By 2016, a deadly opioid crisis was overwhelming his office. Prescription drugs like oxycodone were killing people. Then heroin made a comeback. Overdose deaths hit 50 a year and kept climbing. And I tried to raise the alarms about this, that at this rate, we will see more drug deaths in a given year in New Hampshire than traffic deaths. Well, that got people upset. Well, sure enough, it came to pass. What was the actual number if it started out at like 50 a year? There were 500 drug deaths a year. There was this frustration with some folks who were perfectly content not to do anything. We live free or die here. I could not reconcile that with what I was seeing and what I was feeling. By 2017, Tom Andrew, then 61, had had enough and retired. And what he did next is the focus here. He launched a new chapter in his life, his third act. He enrolled in seminary school to become a Methodist deacon so he could work with his local Boy Scout troop. He believed it would be a great way to help kids and might even help save one of them from getting hooked on drugs and dying young. I spent 20 years on the assessment end, counting the cost. When I wanted to make my change, I wanted to work with young people and let them see that there's a better way than that pill or that powder or that joint that's offered to them by their erstwhile friend. Tom completed his divinity degree and is now going through the slow process of becoming a fully ordained Methodist deacon. His late-in-life career shift has required going back to school and sitting for a series of interviews with church elders. At 66, he was the oldest person in the room, but he's unfazed by that. You know, what does late in life mean anymore? 60 is the new 50. I'm reasonably healthy. It's not just me. I mean, this is a phenomenon that we're seeing all across this nation. People who may be sort of at the end of the line in their chosen profession, but they still have plenty of energy and passion left. He's right about that. Every day, 10,000 baby boomers reach retirement age, but lots of them aren't ready to stop working either because they can't afford to or, like Tom, they don't want to. And there's another factor at play here. A little over a century ago, life expectancy in the U.S. was about 47 years old. Well, today, life expectancy hovers around 80. Barbara Waxman is a gerontologist who writes and lectures about this phase of life. Over the last few years, average life expectancy in America has actually declined due to a number of factors, including the pandemic, drug overdoses, and suicides. Even so, we're still living three decades longer than we did a century ago. Waxman says it's important to understand that living longer doesn't mean an extended old age. That is not how we experience those years. We experience an expanded midsection. It's actually a gift if we can shift our cultural narrative about this expanded midlife. Waxman calls this period middle essence. Like adolescence, middle essence is a time of change and tumult, 
but also of opportunity and growth if people can give up what she calls the sticky commitment to conformity. Lots of people are, according to Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, a professor of education at Harvard. In 2009, she published a book called The Third Chapter, Passion, Risk, and Adventure in the 25 Years After 50. I believe that this time between 50 and 75 may be the most generative and transformational time in our lives. Lawrence Lightfoot interviewed dozens of people who made transitions late in life. They include an industrial chemist who became a sculptor in his late 60s, a former journalist and newspaper executive who became a jazz pianist. Lawrence Lightfoot says these third acts can be liberating, but they're often not easy. This is really very, very challenging to take these risks, to pursue this thing which is uncertain, which is unclear, realizing that part of this process of growing and taking risks is being willing to be vulnerable. We ask you to bless this food that we receive. Back at Scout Camp, Tom Andrew offers grace before the weekly Scoutmaster dinner. Let us remember that we are here for the young people we serve to offer them the best week of camp we can. Amen. Tom's third act hasn't always been easy. He says sometimes he loses confidence or gets frustrated by church bureaucracy. But the chance to help kids brings him back. For example, at a recent World Scouting Jamboree, he met a young scout from Britain who was in crisis. He had come to a conclusion that he did not believe in God. And he was facing the prospect of going back home and telling his mother this. And he knew that it was not going to be a good experience. As they talked, Tom learned that the young man had an uncle, a man of faith with whom he was very close. So Tom urged him to ask that uncle to help navigate the difficult conversation with his mother. That seemed to help. It was a little thing. I wasn't there to say, no, you're wrong, you have to believe in God. That's insanity. But bringing some measure of comfort to him, seeing the tears dry up, seeing the smile on his face was absolutely worth the whole time I spent at the Jamboree. Tom says his third act, what you might call his middlescent reboot, has been a risk worth taking. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Anthony will be back next Monday with another third act story. If you've reinvented your life in a surprising way, we want to hear from you. Email us at thirdactstory at gmail.com. That's thirdactstory, all one word, at gmail.com. Voters in Argentina defied pollsters and backed the ruling party's candidate in presidential elections yesterday. The current government's economy minister placed first ahead of a far-right libertarian who vows to take a chainsaw to the government and fix the country's dire economy. Poverty is rising and annual inflation is in the triple digits, one of the highest rates in the world, as NPR's Kerry Kahn reports. In a stunning first-place finish, Sergio Massa, the ruling party's candidate, garnered nearly 37% of the vote. Standing alone on a huge stage last night, he gave a pretty subdued victory speech, except this burst of gratitude at the end. Count on me and I will count on you all, he told the crowd yet avoiding specifics on how he will tackle the country's current economic meltdown. The peso is plummeting and annual inflation nearly tops 140 percent. 
Massa portrays himself as a pragmatic centrist in the left-leaning Peronist party. He distanced himself from the establishment despite running its economic policies, and that appears to be working, along with what analysts say is el voto de miedo, the fear vote, that the far-right libertarian Javier Millet would go too far. His supporters, largely young and male last night, embraced drastic changes. Millet won nearly 30% of the vote, coming in second. We have to understand that we are facing a criminal organization that won't stop committing atrocities to stay in power, he told the crowd. His fix? Ditch the peso for the U.S. dollar, dynamite the central bank, and drastically cut government spending. He calls himself an anarcho-capitalist, believing the state shouldn't play a role in the economy or much of anything else. He says climate change is a socialist lie. He wants to relax gun laws, ban abortion, and only have foreign relations with Israel and the U.S. While few advocate such radical changes, there is widespread consensus that Argentina's government needs a drastic overhaul. Argentina needs to have a much smaller state. Benjamin Gadan is director of the Latin America program at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. It simply can't afford to spend this amount of money subsidizing every public utility you could imagine and providing endless social services that are in need for some portion of the population, but simply not affordable. Annie adds, with few international borrowing options, the government can't keep printing money to sustain its large social welfare state. The two candidates will face each other in a November 19th runoff. Carrie Kahn, NPR News. Gas utilities and their trade group turned to a trusted playbook to fend off regulation of gas stoves, big tobaccos. Our investigation shows health concerns about nitrogen dioxide from gas stoves. They were emerging in the 1960s, and that coincided with a campaign by the gas industry to get gas stoves into more American kitchens. And we found the gas industry started funding its own research that made the data seem less certain than it was. Now that we know gas stoves pollute air in homes, NPR's Jeff Brady will join us with what comes next, how we can deal with the stoves we rely on, and possible regulation for the appliances in the future. Come back to tomorrow's All Things Considered for that. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture with their upholstery event through October. Hundreds of sofa sectional and chair styles in sustainably sourced fabrics and leathers. CircleFurniture.com. Coming up on WBRS All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, hostage diplomacy between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Join historian Simon Shama at City Space tomorrow for a conversation about his book Foreign Bodies and the Complex History of Pandemics and Vaccines. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Partly cloudy tonight, down around 40 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunny, breezy, nice. Highs about 62. Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. One of the perks of living here is that the greater Boston area has a lot of old-fashioned independent movie houses. There's the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, the Somerville Theater in Davis Square in Somerville, 
in the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, which is in Cambridge. The theaters show both mainstream and art cinema, as well as host a number of screenings for local film festivals. For more on the indie movie theater scene here and for other tips about navigating Boston, head to wbur.org slash fieldguide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Hollywood performers and studios will be back at the bargaining table tomorrow, trying to hammer out a new three-year contract. Talks have been on pause for nearly two weeks, and members of the SAG-AFTRA union have been on strike for more than 100 days. Many NPR employees are members of SAG-AFTRA, though journalists work under a different contract than the Hollywood actors. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports on where the negotiations go from here. Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos is one of the studio heads who will be back to renegotiate a new deal. You should know we are incredibly and totally committed to ending this strike. You know, the industry, our communities, and the economy are all hurting. So we need to get a deal done that respects all sides as soon as we possibly can. Two weeks ago, Sarandos and others represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers broke off contract talks. They blamed it on one of the union's demands that the streamers pay performers 57 cents per subscriber every year. On Instagram, SAG after President Fran Drescher said the union came up with a proposal to share the wealth after, quote, cracking the code of the streaming model. It may not be easy. It may not be what they want. But it is an elegant way to solve the problem so we can all go back to work in what would become the new normal. The studios balked, saying the proposed model would cost too much. Sarandos called it, quote, a bridge too far. When talks resume tomorrow, we'll find out if that subscriber fee model is still on the table. But already the union lowered its original request for the streamers to pay higher residuals when shows and films are re-aired. On the picket line outside Amazon Studios this morning, strike captain Chelsea Schwartz said she hopes the AMPTP stays at the bargaining table this time. What's really crazy is that we were asking for a 2% revenue stream for this sharing of work that we're creating for them that they're profiting off of and we're not. And then we dropped down from 2% to 1%. So we dropped 50% of our proposal. And that's when they walked away from the table and called us greedy. Really? Are you kidding me? Paul Hewitt, a union member since 1989, says he doesn't believe the AMPTP's claims that they can't afford to pay the performers more. I'm also a bit concerned that we're giving too much ground. They were asking for 2%, now it's 1%, and that's half. And it seems like we're always giving too much. Revenue sharing is only part of the union's proposed package, which includes protections against the use of artificial intelligence for the union's actors, stunt performers, voiceover actors, dancers, and others. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. Let's talk soul. You already know soul legends like Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, the Supremes. There were hundreds of American artists who recorded demos in the 60s and 70s that never made it on the radio. Enter a group of enthusiastic British music collectors who gave these songs a home and created an underground genre that was dubbed Northern Soul. 
Reporter Rebecca Rossman has the story about how this movement came to be and its modern-day resurgence. This is the sound of a sold-out club in East London in 2023. The song, 1965's Tainted Love by the American artist Gloria Jones. If Aretha Franklin is the queen of soul, Gloria Jones is the queen of northern soul. There's an important distinction here. Northern soul is inherently up-tempo, black, like American music that never really made it in America. That's Lewis Henderson. He's one half of the Deptford Northern Soul Club, the duo headlining tonight's event at the Moth Club in Hackney. It's like B-music. It's like B-movies, but, you know, like this kind of fast, up-tempo music that people didn't want to listen to in their homes. Which is what brought it to clubs like this one. Tonight, it's a Gen Z audience looking to dance. When you get a big mass of people together and you want to dance, you know, like this is possibly the most amazing music to dance to. But as packed and energetic as this dance floor is, the story of Northern Soul hardly starts with this generation. It really starts in the 1960s, when most of these records were made. 29-year-old Will Foote is the other half of the Deptford Northern Soul Club. He says those B-sides were destined to live in obscurity. That is, if it wasn't for an obsessive group of British music collectors. There's stories of DJs flying over to America and going like to places like Miami and Chicago and Detroit and just going through warehouses of records that dealers were selling on and didn't really know what they have and they would bring them back and make them hits in the UK. Hits not just anywhere in the UK. Northern Soul's success came from cities and clubs across northern England, where the music resonated with the region's working class. People like the legendary Northern Soul DJ Colin Curtis. In a nutshell, this is working class people finding, uh, finding an exciting music form and finding clubs that were doing this, and then the extra excitement of an all-nighter. You can stay up all night, you can tell your mum you're staying at a friend's, but you're going to be out all night. One of the most famous clubs was a place called Wigan Casino, a ballroom just outside of Manchester that could fit 2,000 people. There's folk spinning, folk running up the walls, flipping over, landing in book splits, and the music building, clapping on it. Oh, it was heavy. That's Keb Darge, a Scottish Taekwondo master turned dancer turned DJ, who says from a dance perspective, there was nothing like Wigan. I've been trying to recreate it as a DJ ever since, because it was so good. As for the music itself, dozens of American artists whose careers never took off at home were now the stars of Northern Soul, unbeknownst to many of them. We did track down artists, you know, and they were amazed that we knew the records. Some of them didn't even remember they made the records, you know. They got, which is Johnny Baker, shy guy, was working as a gas station. And they got ahead of him to say, we've got some money for you. And I don't know why I'm a shy, shy But to everything, there is a season. And over the years, Northern Soul's influence started to fade. Clubs like Wigan were forced to shut. Fans got older. Which is what makes Gen Z crowns like this one in East London peculiar. 
But in many ways, they say they're interested in Northern Soul for the same reason as the people who first discovered this genre back in the 60s. Here's 24-year-old Alex Standish. There's no sense of conformity. Everyone turns up in crazy outfits and they dance, like, in a way which is completely uninhibited. In other words, Standish sees Northern Soul as an escape. And he says it feels very freeing to be a part of what was once thought of as an ephemeral underground movement. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com pets. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Chilly tonight in the low 40s. Tomorrow should reach the low 60s once again. The sun should last longer than it did today. Then on Wednesday, suddenly spring-like with temperatures in the low 70s and lots of sunshine. In sports, all the locals have the night off tonight. The Bruins play the Blackhawks in Chicago tomorrow night. The Celtics open their regular season in New York Wednesday night. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's Hidden Gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Two women who Hamas militants abducted in Israel more than two weeks ago have been released. They were taken to a medical center in Israel. Their husbands remain captive, as do some 200 other hostages. Coming up on WBUR, the pressure on hostage negotiators to secure more releases before Israel begins a ground invasion of Gaza. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, decades after a crime lab in Virginia found DNA evidence that exonerated more than a dozen people, a new review shows that a former employee altered evidence in the cases. How they did it, coming up. And this month marks the 70th anniversary of an explosion aboard the USS Leyte at the South Boston Naval Annex. 92-year-old Jim Sickless remembers the fire below deck that claimed 37 lives. After the fire, they called everybody aboard so they could count who was alive and who is not alive. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The Republicans running for House Speaker are set to make their pitches to colleagues. They're gathering for a closed-door meeting set to begin in about a half an hour, as NPR's Deidre Walsh reports. The House of Representatives continues to be frozen without a speaker. Of the nine candidates in the race, House Majority Whip Tom Emmer from Minnesota may have an edge. He's currently number three in the House and ran the GOP campaign committee. Mike Johnson from Louisiana and Gary Palmer of Alabama also serve in Republican leadership. After listening to all the candidates speak in a closed-door forum, members vote via secret ballot on Tuesday. With so many in the running, that process could take multiple rounds. A full House vote could come as soon as Tuesday, but it's unclear if a new nominee can get the votes needed to win the gavel, 217, if all members are present and voting. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Hamas militants in Gaza have released two more hostages. The International Committee of the Red Cross confirmed the release today, and Israeli media say they are two elderly Israeli women whose husbands are still being held in Gaza. An American woman and her daughter were freed by Hamas on Friday. Today's hostage release came on the same day that a third humanitarian aid convoy rolled into Gaza amid Israel's ongoing bombardment. Gaza's health ministry says more than 400 people have been killed over the past 24 hours. The Biden administration has sent U.S. military officers to advise Israel on its operation in Gaza. And Paris Franco Ordonez has the latest on the level of support the U.S. government is providing to Israel. It began with Axios's reporting that Lieutenant General James Glenn has been sent to Israel. Asked about that, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said that a few officers will share lessons learned. There are a few relevant military officers with experience, the kinds of experience that, uh, that, uh, that we believe uh, um, is, a, is appropriate to uh, the sorts of operations that, that Israel is conducting and may conduct in the future. Last week, President Biden told reporters that the U.S. military was talking with Israel's military about, quote, alternatives to a ground invasion. But he would not go into details. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Detroit police say there is no reason to believe anti-Semitism inflamed by the war between Israel and Hamas is behind the stabbing death of a synagogue leader. And Chief James White says police do not believe anyone else is at risk. Although he said today the investigation is ongoing and that there are several persons of interest. Everything possible is being done to bring uh, this case to a close. Uh, I ask for patience. Uh, There's a lot of evidence and information that has to be analyzed. 40-year-old Samantha Wool was found stabbed to death outside her home on Saturday. She was a president of the Isaac Agri downtown synagogue. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy and Attorney General Andrea Campbell are putting out guidance to strengthen equity in schools and colleges. They unveiled their recommendations today at UMass Boston. Governor Healy said they include ways K-12 schools and higher education institutions can support students from underrepresented groups. Now, we know there's been concern and confusion about what is legal and allowable now. These guidelines make clear every campus's continued rights and continued opportunities to expand access and advance equity and inclusion on every campus. 
Her comments follow a U.S. Supreme Court ruling over the summertime that effectively ended race-conscious college admissions. Healy says institutions can collect data on race and ethnicity and can reconsider their admissions policies based on legacy preferences and early admission plans. Jurors have found 27-year-old Logan Clegg guilty of second-degree murder in the deaths of a Concord, New Hampshire couple last year. Clegg shot and killed the couple as they were walking on a popular trail near their home. Police say he'd been living in a tent in the woods near where the couple was killed. He's being held without bail until he's sentenced in December. A new poll from Suffolk University and USA Today shows the 2024 presidential race is deadlocked between the two frontrunners. The National Survey of Registered Voters found 37 percent support for both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. University of Massachusetts Amherst marching band is preparing for the small screen, but it's going to be a while before you get to see them. The Minuteman Marching Band will perform in the 2024 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. This Verizon announcement was made recently at a school football game. Band member Marielle Churkala was there. Macy's has been the dream. Um, this is kind of like, I guess a little bit like our Super Bowl. This will be the Minuteman Marching Band's second time performing in the Macy's Day Parade. And a heads up for drivers who may be using the Mass Turnpike through downtown Boston in the overnight hours. Starting tonight, there will be lane closures in both directions in the vicinity of Boylston Street and Newbury Street for paving work. The closures will be in place Monday through Thursday from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. for approximately the next two weeks. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight should be down around the low 40s. And then for tomorrow, lots of sun. Sunshine should be right around the low 60s, once again turning warmer as the week goes on. 57 now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There is ongoing international diplomacy to try to free hostages held by Hamas in Gaza and to get more aid into Gaza. Two elderly Israelis were released today. Meanwhile, Israel says Hamas has still been trying to launch attacks since the massive invasion of southern Israel October 7th. And Israeli troops continue to bombard Gaza and amass troops on the border. International diplomats may be trying to delay a ground offensive to buy time to get hostages out and to contain the conflict. NPR's Michelle Kellerman joins us now to talk about the latest. Hi there. Hi there, Juana. So, Michelle, let's just start with those two hostages that we mentioned who were released today. What can you tell us about them? So Israeli um, media say that there are two women who are around 80 and 85 years old. They had been kidnapped from their kibbutz. Um, their husbands are reportedly still being held in Gaza. And this follows the release Friday of two Americans, a mother and daughter. Um, but this is really still just a small number, Wana. Hamas is believed to be holding 220 hostages, children, men, women, the elderly, and nationals of many countries. Um, the U.S. says there are still uh, 10 Americans missing. And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the administration is very focused on this. It is literally an hour-by-hour -hour effort here at the White House and at the State Department to find out where these folks are 
and to try to make the effort to get them out and get them back. He also says there are several hundred Palestinian Americans who are trying to get out of Gaza as Israel continues to bombard the area. The U.S. has been trying to get them through a border crossing with Egypt, but Egypt is pushing for more aid to get in. The U.N. says only about 54 trucks have gotten in in recent days, but no fuel. And this is a drop in the bucket for what's needed. Um, Palestinians say 5,000 Palestinians have been killed in Mm. Israeli airstrikes. Um, You know, there were 1,400 Israelis killed by Hamas. Michelle, I mean, how much is the hostage diplomacy weighing on officials as they talk to Israel about preparations for a future ground offensive? Well, certainly family members want to give diplomacy more time. Um, You're also hearing that from European diplomats. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, is going to Israel this week, and the fate of French hostages will be on his agenda. Um, You know, Juana, I talked to Christopher O'Leary, who used to be the director of hostage recovery for the U.S. government. He's now with a security consultancy called the Soufan Group. And he says the U.S. and others could argue for a delay, but he added this. Hamas is playing a very deliberate, calculated game. This is part of their broader strategy. They were going to try to drag this out and change the narrative from what they did on October 7th to somewhat being victims. The U.S. and Israel don't want to let Hamas buy time to rest and refit, as one State Department spokesman said today. And U.S. officials have been thanking Qatar for playing a role in these hostage releases. Help us understand how that Gulf state has become such a central figure here. So I asked O'Leary about this, too, and he called the Qataris exceptional partners. They played a role in getting Americans out of Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrew, and they played a role in getting American detainees out of Iran more recently. And Qatar plays a really interesting role in Gaza. It has a lot of influence with Hamas because it's been helping to pay for salaries of public workers in Gaza over the years. There's a Hamas office in Doha. So when Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Qatar recently, Recently, he had to strike a balance. He said it can no longer be business as usual with Hamas, but he also made clear that he wants Qatar to keep open these channels of communication while Hamas continues to hold hostages. Qatar said it's ready to play that role, but it doesn't want to be attacked in public for dealing with Hamas since the U.S. and Israel want these channels maintained. And Michelle, in the short time we have left, is the United States asking Israel to delay its ground offensive to allow for more hostages to be released? Well, officials won't say that publicly, but they are offering some words of caution behind closed doors with Israel. And there are other reasons why, not just the hostage situation. There's a big fear of regional blowback. That could mean threats against U.S. embassies and military bases. So U.S. officials are talking about steps they're taking to beef up security in the region with aircraft carrier groups and with other forces to prepare for that kind of blowback. NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. The vast majority, 90 percent of the medications that Americans take are generic. And unlike pricey brand name drugs, generics are usually cheap. In fact, they are often too cheap for manufacturers to turn profits, even for making life-saving medicines. As a result, the industry has atrophied for decades as drug shortages worsen. Meanwhile, one woman is finding workarounds to help desperate patients, as NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports. Laura Bray had no idea the generic drug market was broken until four years ago when her nine-year-old girl, Abby, missed chemotherapy because a $10 drug ran out. 
and we were told that the most important thing that we could do as parents to help her survive was compliance with the drug regimen every single day, every single time. Yet there was none to be had. At the time, Bray studied supply chains and taught business at a Tampa community college, so she knew which questions to ask. Who makes how much of the drug Abby needs? When's the next shipment? And does anyone have unused doses they could share? But no one could tell her. Is there a public, available, transparent place with all of those answers? In the supply chain, the answer is no. Much of that information is considered trade secret. As a result, patients, doctors, pharmacists, and even regulators are left guessing when, if, or how a drug shortage might end. That outraged the mother of three. I could not believe that our pharmaceutical supply chain, the supply chain that fills the hands that save our people, was not redundant enough, and our tennis shoe supply chain was better managed. Terrified, Abby Bray asked whether all that meant she would die. Her mother leveled her eyes at her middle child and said, We don't know, but I'm going to try to find it. And sometimes in trying, extraordinary things happen. Once they lose patent protection, generic medicines are often sold in bundles. Hospitals, pharmacists, or patients cannot compare a particular drug's quality against that of another maker. So generic manufacturers compete solely on price. That's created a race to rock-bottom prices, making it hard for them to stay in business. Generic drug maker Acorn shut down in bankruptcy this year. Teva and others paired their product lines. Fewer factories means more frequent shortages. These shortages are a self-inflicted wound. Marta Wojinska studies health policy at the Brookings Institution. She says it's clear the manufacturers need to make more money to stabilize. The more difficult question is how. She argues the government should financially reward hospitals able to provide more reliable supplies of drugs. That requires us to be forward-looking and really changing dynamics in the whole system. Such an overhaul would take time, and Abby Bray's treatment couldn't wait. So her mother worked the phones, scouring for any hospital, researcher, or cancer center with spare drug. One distributor, McKesson, told Bray it would transport doses to her daughter if she located any. Then she and friends called hundreds of children's hospitals until finding unused vials. And then just like duct taping together solutions, it's insane. The initial scramble left Bray grateful, but not relieved. She thought of other patients facing shortages. She posted advice on Facebook, then set up a website. And then that's when it really kind of took off. Desperate calls and emails streamed in, and Angels for Change, Bray's one-woman nonprofit, was born. At first, she handled each patient by patient. But as she got to know hospital pharmacists, drug distributors, and many others along the supply chain, Bray found she could fill a whole hospital's urgent drug needs, for example. Now, four years in, Bray has eyes and ears across the industry. If a factory falters or closes, her sources help her locate backup inventory or estimate future shipments. With the other manufacturers, I'm asking, will you share for patients in dire need? Will you hold back a small amount of supply, 1% of that batch? Even big players in pharmaceuticals agree. Bray is the industry's accidental expert. 
She's become a human version of the database she looked for when her daughter's shots first ran out. She is the go-to person for patients facing dire drug needs. But, as she points out, there's nothing automated about the painstaking work. (laughs) I wish I had a software system. She took a pay cut and stopped teaching to work full-time for Angels for Change. It's now funded by individuals and the McKesson Foundation. She says she wishes she could return to her old life, but can't because she's haunted by the thought of other families facing shortages. There are moments in your life that are just burned in your memory, you know, and that change you. And some of that change can be for the better, but all that change comes with trauma. At first, Bray knew all the people she helped, a 14-year-old violinist, a 5-year-old Spider-Man superfan, her own Abby, now 13, energetic and healthy. Bray's even gotten to a point where she can predict shortages and has found ways to avert them. She says that's helped potentially hundreds of thousands of others. Still, Bray feels restless. The responsibility feels heavy. Her system relies on her. If I was hit by a bus tomorrow, it would all go away. So Bray wants to see permanent reform of the whole system, and she's optimistic. She says more policymakers and industry players seem to realize the urgent need for collective action. It's daunting, she says, but hopes they can look to Angels for Change as proof of what can be done. What I hope it shows everyone is that this is possible to fix. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace, the contentious debate surrounding CEO pay. On Wall Street, the Dow lost about a six-tenths of a percent. S&P was down about two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq finished up just over a quarter of a percent. Widowmaker Brewing Company is opening a new facility in Brighton this week. The company's already got a taproom in Braintree and a seasonal beer garden in Quincy. A grand opening celebration in Brighton will be on Saturday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Globe with an all-documentary film festival returning in theaters and online October 25th through 29th. The ninth annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversations with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets and info available at globe.com slash filmfest. Tomorrow at 90.9 WBUR, a beech tree disease is plaguing 90 Massachusetts towns. We'll explain the stressor caused by climate change tomorrow morning. Listen on the WBUR app or on your radio. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Down around 40 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, about 62 degrees. WBUR supporters include Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than two decades ago, Virginia's crime lab discovered clippings of evidence taped to lab notes in hundreds of cases. Evidence that led to the exoneration of 13 people who had been wrongfully convicted. The forensic scientist who kept the evidence was hailed as a hero. But a whistleblower has raised major questions about her work. Ben Pavier with member station VPM reports. In 1982, Marvin Anderson was convicted in a rape and abduction case. There was no DNA testing at the time. He spent 15 years in prison. Then, in 2001, the state crime lab revealed that the forensic scientist working his case had taped down swabs of evidence, including semen found on the victim. DNA tests confirmed Anderson's innocence. He was driving when he found out. I just pulled over to the side, got out the truck, and they started walking down 95, and I just started dancing. I mean, people were blowing a horn at me like I was crazy. The scientist, Mary Jane Burton, had died two years earlier after a long career as a serologist. For Anderson, it almost felt like Burton had known more accurate forensic techniques were coming. I always look at Miss Burton as a person that saw the future. It turned out that it wasn't just Anderson's case where Burton kept evidence in her lab notes. Here's Paul Ferrara, the lab's director at the time, in a 2006 interview with NPR's Anthony Brooks. Now, as it turns out, we find out that there are thousands of cases. Thousands? Thousands. The state spent the next 13 years going through those files, leading to a slew of exonerations. Burton was lionized in the press as a hero of Virginia wrongful conviction cases. But there was at least one person with a very different opinion of Burton's work, Gina Demas, who trained under Burton in the 1970s. All those people that sat in jail and now they're saying, thank God for Mary Jane Burton. Dima said she discovered that Burton was regularly skipping critical controls, pushing the limits of her testing, and even falsifying lab results. This is a story that will scare the bejesus out of you. She told her story to reporters Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman in the podcast Admissible, Shreds of Evidence. At first, they had no idea whether to take her seriously. But as they began combing through Demas's old so, files... Geez. So what does all this mean? Okay. I feel like it's gibberish. I'm still going. I know. <laughs> they found paperwork that supports her claims that Burton altered yeah. test results. That's they also changed that. Oh yeah. BA1. That's totally changed. The result? With Burton's change, the police's suspect wouldn't be ruled out. Demas tried to get the attention of the lab's leadership. She even filed an unsuccessful lawsuit in the 1970s. They all covered all that up, knowing it was wrong. If you want to do that, there's mafias for that. For the podcast, Kramer and a team of reporters looked into Demas's allegations and the culture of the Virginia lab. They spoke with several of Mary Jane Burton's former co-workers, including Deanne Dabbs. She said she was aware of problems with Burton's work, but nothing on the scale of changed test results. I think it calls into question the cases that she worked. I mean, all the cases, and she worked a lot of cases. Now, a committee overseeing the state crime lab's work is deciding whether to revisit old cases for more than just DNA evidence. The lab's current director, Linda Jackson, recently addressed the accusations in a committee meeting. The reason we're all here is because it needs to be reviewed and then go from there. The committee could decide to let the matter rest. There have been questions about cost and feasibility. Or they could act on the new revelations and open a new chapter in the story of Mary Jane Burton and the people affected by her work. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. There's a modest plaque at the Charlestown Navy Yard that marks a horrific event on the Boston waterfront 
The plaque reads, In memory of our shipmates and civilians lost in the disastrous explosion aboard the USS Leyte. The blast happened 70 years ago this month. It killed 37 men, including five civilians. The U.S. Naval Institute says it was the largest loss of life ever on the Boston waterfront. And it's forgotten, mostly. In July 1953, there was a truce in the Korean War. In Korea, three years of combat end as United Nations and Communist negotiators at Panmunjom sign a truce. The long war undertaken to stop red aggression is over. The USS Leyte was given two battle stars for distinguished service in Korea. The warship was enormous. It could carry 100 aircraft and 1,400 sailors who spread across several decks. Three months after the truce in Korea, the Leyte was in Boston. She was moored at the massive South Boston Naval Annex. Jim Sickless remembers those days well. He's now 92 years old and lives in Arlington. In 1953, he was a petty officer third class on the craft. I was assigned to the USS Leyte, and I was aboard it for one week when the explosion occurred on the ship. The explosion was thunderous. It happened at 3.15 in the afternoon. All the clocks on board stopped. Some of the sailors were in training classes. Some were changing clothes to go out on leave. As for Sickless... I was on the dock, taking supplies from the dock, bringing it aboard the ship, and there was a commotion aboard the ship when everybody said, fire, fire. And when that happened, I dropped everything, and I helped the sailors uh, with water hoses. So I did the best to help as much as I could. Billows of black smoke spewed from the craft and filled the air across the Navy Yard. David Hannigan is a park guide with the Boston National Historical Park. He picks up the timeline. Flames mushroomed through the forward part of the ship, belched into the air about 25 feet above the hangar deck. An oil line was ruptured that began to fuel the fire. You just would see burning and scorching. Men were hurled across the flight deck. Witnesses said the blast started four decks below the flight deck in the catapult room. The catapult is the slingshot technology that helps propel planes when there's little runway. At least one explosion followed, maybe two. Firefighters said temperatures hit 200 degrees. They could feel the heat from the steel decks through their boots. Rescuers poured water into the smoldering hatches as Navy men let everyone out of the brig. Some braved the smoke and found bodies of sailors lying in water and oil. They dragged them up the escape hatches to safety, or tried to. Some people suspected sabotage, but the Navy concluded that a valve leaked flammable hydraulic fluid and a spark ignited the fire. Could have happened when someone flipped on a light switch. Again, Petty Officer Jim Sickless. After the fire, they called everybody aboard to get onto the hangar deck so they could count who was alive and who was not alive. And after they did that, they furnished us with coins to call our families. The family of a civilian machinist who was on board the vessel never got that call. My name is Selby Herald. I was born in Somerville, Mass. I live on the Cape now in Falmouth. October 16, 1953 was a special day for him. It was his ninth birthday, and when his father finished work, there was going to be cake. I remember that before he went to work, he said, I'll see you when I get home. Selby Harold's father died on the USS Leyte that day. His name was also Selby. Two Navy men came to the house to tell the family there'd been an accident. 
Harold turns 79 years old this October 16th. His brother mentions that it's the anniversary of their dad's death, but Harold doesn't dwell on it. I guess she becomes stronger and we grew up pretty much on our own. My mother, she says, you know, to stay out of trouble, which we did. <laughs> so I'm doing okay in life. The South Boston Naval Shipyard is no more. It's now the Raymond Flynn Marine Park. When park ranger David Hannigan is at the site, he is likely one of the few Bostonians who reflect on the tragedy that seems to have disappeared from memory. You can't help but think about an event like this because prior to the late disaster, there had gone 19 years without a single fatality at the Navy Yard, which is remarkable, especially considering that during the Second World War, the peak labor force was in excess of 51,000 men and women. And in all the years that America was fighting the war, there wasn't a single life lost at Boston Naval Shipyard. The USS Leyte returned to sea three months later. She was decommissioned in 1959 and sold for scrap in 1970. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. And Boston Lyric Opera with La Cenerentola, Cinderella, a new BLO production set in modern-day Boston, November 8th through 12th at the Emerson Cutler Majestic Theatre.